So tonight we're in Revelation 13, and we're going to begin in verse 11 and read through verse 18. And next week we'll walk through all of chapter 14, and then the next week I'm going to be out, but John Braley's going to be with you, and he's going to walk you through chapter 15. Uh, he said, can I, can I do the next passage? And I said, if you're game, you're welcome to it. So he's game. He's going to do it. So he'll walk you through chapter 15, and then I'll be back, and we'll continue. And the way it looks, this will take us um, probably through the middle of June, and we'll be, we'll be done. And then uh, we'll do something else for the rest of the summer in our family Bible study session for the summer. And then in the fall, we'll, we'll kick off another study but tonight we want to look at Revelation 13, and just so that we're sort of all in the same camp and, and coming to this from the same place, I want to walk us back through the, the whole book, sort of remind us, how did we get here? What's been going on in the Revelation? So chapter 1, remember, was an introduction. John told us that he was on the island of Patmos, and he was there on account of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. He's been exiled there. He's being persecuted on account of his faith. And John tells us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And as he was worshiping God, he was caught up. He had a, a, an experience, a visionary experience, in which he beheld the resurrected Lord Jesus who stood in the middle of the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches and John told us there that he was given a vision, that this vision was to be written down and recorded as a means of blessing for those who read and those who heed the prophecy of this book. We talked about the fact that the Revelation is it's trifold in its genre. One, it's, it is a letter, right? It's, it's an epistle. In fact, it's a series of epistles, and it's a series of letters, it was circular in its nature that it, it went not just to one church, but to many churches. It was sent on from church to church to church, which is why we have been given it today. And John tells us that it's not only an epistle. He says it's also a, a prophecy. He said that, that there's prophecy in this book. We're to keep the prophecy of this book. We're not to add to the prophecy of this book or take away from the prophecy of this book. So John is telling us that this, this book comes with authority for our lives today, and it also comes with predictive promise about the future. And then John tells us that not only is it a letter, an epistle, and it's a prophecy, he also says it's an apocalypse. It's, it's a revelation. It's an unveiling of those things that are to come. This was a common genre in the time between the Old and New Testaments and common in the first century. And John is embracing all of the figurative and, and symbolic language of apocalyptic literature in order to convey what it is that he sees. In chapters 2 and 3, you remember that there were seven letters to the seven churches. And those letters were given as a call to arms. They were a way for the risen Lord Jesus to speak to his people. Remember, John said that Jesus walked in the middle of the seven churches. It's a reminder to us that Jesus knows his people. He's intimately acquainted with his church. He knows us down to a one. He knows all our peculiarities and all of our, our particular details. He knows our joys and our sorrows. He knows our victories and he also knows our losses. He knows where we're faithful and he also knows where we are faithless. I'm so thankful that Jesus knows his church. Uh, for about the last four weeks, I've been working almost daily on a particular project, and that is to know the people of Elkdale. You might think, well, uh, listen, preacher, we went through this remembering process a few years ago. Shouldn't it be rather simple to know who the members of Elkdale are? Nope, not quite. So I've been trying to track you all down. I've been trying to figure out who belongs, who's in and who's out, who's up and who's down. I've been looking for people, and there are 539 of you. Did you know that? 539. My goodness, could you imagine if they all showed up at once? We'd have quite a gathering, wouldn't we? At Elkdale, we do a fair job, not a good job, but a fair job of keeping track of our people. I'm so glad Jesus does a better job than we do. He knows those who belong to him. He doesn't lose a one. 
He's intimately acquainted with us, and he tells us the truth about ourselves. He tells us that we should take action. We should draw close. We should strengthen what remains. We should pursue him fresh and new so that we conquer and overcome at the end of days. In chapter 4, John had a vision of the throne of God and the one who was seated on the throne was like the ancient of days foretold in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And John said that glory and honor and praise and power and dominion and majesty belong to the one who was seated on the throne. And he said in the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne there was a scroll that was sealed with seven seals. And in chapter 5, John said, they held a search... They went looking for someone who could open the seals of the scroll and read what was inside. He said they searched over all of heaven looking for somebody who could open the scroll and said nobody was found. And then finally came forward one who was standing like a lamb as though it had been slain. And John said that he walked up to the Ancient of Days who was seated on the throne and he took the scroll from his right hand and all of heaven broke out in a resounding chorus of praise and worship and there were elders and saints and and all kinds of angelic beings who were giving praise to God and to the Lamb saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open it. Because you've overcome. And in chapter 6, we are introduced to the contents of that scroll. Remember, we said that the things that are revealed inside of this scroll pertain first to this ordinary course of human history. What happens in your lifetime, in my lifetime, and in the lives of all the saints of God between the first and final comings of Jesus. But the further that we go into the scroll, the more seals that are open, the closer we get to the end of days to the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those first four scrolls were opened and they told us a story of ordinary human history. They told us about the mission of Christ going forward in the, in the advancement of God's kingdom. And they told us about warfare and bloodshed. And they told us about economic downturn and what it's like for there to be mass poverty and, and for people to be starving to death. And they told us about death being characteristic of this broken, sinful world in which we live. You remember that when the fifth seal was opened, there were souls beneath the altar of God. They were there on account of the word of God, slain for their testimony in the Lord Jesus. And they were crying out, saying, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you avenge our blood? And you remember they were clothed in white robes and told to rest just a little longer until their number was brought to fulfillment. We talked about that. That's the, the representation of those who die on account of their faith throughout the story of the church. There are people who lose their lives because they did not love them more than they loved the Lord Jesus. And when the sixth seal of that scroll was opened, we were thrown to the end of days. And there was such a description at the end of Revelation chapter 6 that we might have feared and trembled like the peoples of earth. You remember that there when that sixth seal was opened and the people of earth were found trembling and they were looking for a place of cover. It was like the old spiritual song. We went to the rock to hide our face and the rock cried out, no hiding place. They were looking for cover. They said the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come and who can stand? And then we were introduced to chapter 7 with an answer about who can stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Remember that John was given a vision. It was twofold. He said, first I heard the number of the sealing of the saints of God, the tribes of Israel. They were 144,000. But John said that once he heard their number, he looked and instead of seeing 144,000, what he saw was an unnumbered multitude of the nations of earth. And they were coming out of the great tribulation, John said, having washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. That was John's way of saying, how do you overcome? How do you conquer? 
How do you stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb? Well, you become one who is numbered among the numberless people of God. You trust in Jesus. You get washed in His blood. You get sealed by His Spirit. You get counted in His family. The way you overcome, the way you endure, the way you persevere, the way you're able to stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb is to be covered and cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That was a good news, a word of good news, because greater difficulty was coming. When we looked at Revelation chapters 8 and 9, we were introduced to the seven trumpets. You remember that we talked about the fact there are three sets of judgments in this book. First, there are the seven seals on the scroll of human destiny. Then there are the seven trumpets that are blown by seven angels. And then we've yet to see, but there are seven bowls that are poured out full of the undiluted wrath of God that will be cast out over the world by the seven angels. Those seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, they are a ramping up of the days of difficulty. As human history progresses and we're waiting for Jesus to return, the longer that we live and the more that human history goes on, the closer we get to the day of the Lord, the harder the days will be, the more difficult times will be. It will become more and more embattled with darkness and evil and wickedness and we will find that God is pouring out more and more judgment upon the world in an effort, as we will note tonight, in an effort to turn the hearts of men to himself. And so in chapters 8 and 9, we saw the blasting of the first six trumpets and we saw how the world is is increasingly forced to face the judgment of God. Remember, in the seal judgments, it was a quarter of the earth's population affected. In the trumpet judgments, a third of the earth's population affected. In the seal judgments, no human lives were lost by the judgment themselves. But in the trumpet judgments, we come down to... Trumpets 5 and 6, where we see a third of the earth plagued by the stinging locust and then a third of the earth losing their lives by a horde of demonic horses that are released out onto the earth. In those days before the outpouring of God's full wrath, he pours out a measured amount of judgment upon the earth in an effort to shake the hearts of the wicked and turn them to the right. But John says in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, that they did not turn back to him. Instead, they went on loving the things of earth. In Revelation chapter 10, John told us that he saw an angel who had a little scroll. It's not the same as the scroll of chapter 5 and chapter 6, but it's a a little scroll. And John, he was going to tell us about this, but instead he was told to ingest it. Do you remember that? He was told, take it and eat it, and it'll be sweet in your mouth, but it'll be bitter in your stomach. It was a way of saying... When you eat the Word of God, when you consume God's Word and then you give it back to the world, it it is twofold in its application to God's people, to those who love the Lord and who follow in His ways. It's sweet and pleasing, but to those who are far from God, it's bitter and harsh and it, it cuts against their lives. It indicts them in their sin. John was told, it's time to prophesy again. You've got to tell these things to the people. This is sort of a recommissioning for John as he continues to have this this visionary experience. In chapter 11, we were in the midst of an interlude still, and John was told as he's waiting for the seventh trumpet to be blasted because you recall that the seventh trumpet would bring this fullness of the end of days. And so John's waiting for the seventh trumpet, and as he is, he's given this vision, and he's told to participate in a particular act. And the act that he's told to participate in is the measuring of the temple and the altar and the worshipers. John, I want you to measure these things, God says. 
And God tells John to measure these things so that he can understand that God cares about his people. Just like John was given the the numbering of the saints of the tribes of Israel. And just like John saw the washing of the unnumbered multitude of the nations. Now John is told to measure the temple and the altar and the worshipers. All of these are ways of God saying, John, I've got my people. I know those who belong to me. I know them intimately. I don't lose people who belong. To me, John. And the greatest way that God will show John that he doesn't lose those who belong to him is that he writes their names in his book. Slain, the book of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. John was told, take his measuring rod, measure the temple and the altar and the worshipers. But remember, John was told, don't measure the outside of the temple. That cord of the Gentiles, you don't have to measure. It's given over, John was told, to the nations. And then John was told in chapter 11 and verse 2 and 3, he said that that outer cord and indeed the whole holy city of Jerusalem is going to be trampled by the nations for 1,260 days. It's the beginning of difficulty for us as interpreters of this book. If we weren't confused yet, we began to get confused in chapter 11. But remember, we said that 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 number, 1,260 days, or its corollaries, it can also be termed 42 months, or sometimes it's talked about as time, times, and half a time, or we might even think about three and a half years, all of those ways of saying the same thing. It refers to a short, intense period of hardship and judgment and punishment poured out upon the earth and indeed poured out upon the people of God. It's a reference to the time when Antiochus Epiphanes reigned in Judea and when he defiled the holy temple of the Lord in the second century before the life of the Lord Jesus in around the year 162 B.C. John is told there's going to be a time when you, the holy city, the people of God, are given over to the nations, when you're trampled. And John says, you don't have to worry about it. It's going to happen. You're going to prophesy and you're going to fulfill your mission. There are two witnesses, John says, and the two witnesses are two prophets and the two prophets are two lampstands and the two lampstands are two olive trees. It's at that point that we begin to realize that in this vision experience that John has, there are multiple ways of talking about the same thing. So when John says that there are two witnesses who are two prophets, who are two lampstands, who are two olive trees, we have to ask, what's he talking about? Are these two individual people or do they represent something else? And we talked about the fact that they're actually symbolic of the church, the whole people of God. And they have a mission, they have a work to do. And John says that as long as they have a work to do, as long as they have a witness to maintain before the world, they will have power to perform signs and wonders and and to do all of the things to testify to their the truth of the gospel they preach. But when their work is done, John said in chapter 11, there would rise the beast from the abyss. And the beast from the abyss would make war on the witnesses and bring about their death. And remember he said they would be left in the open street, taunted and shamed by the nations as the peoples of earth were finally rid of the witnesses of God who had nagged and annoyed them with the gospel message for so long. But John says, even as the church finishes its witness, and is forced at the end of days to face the persecution of an unbelieving world, they need not worry because in three and a half days they'll rise. It was John's way of saying, listen, this is not going to be the end of you. The people of God are secured in Christ. The people of God have the hope of eternal life. The people of God will be raised at the last day. You have a reason for hope and a cause for joy. There's a reason for you to be faithful to Jesus. You don't overcome by preserving your life. You overcome by surrendering your life to God and not to the God of this world. And John was told at the end of chapter 11... After the word about this beast of the abyss and his power to make war on the church, John was told that it was time. He said in chapter 11 and verse 15 that 
an angel came and blew the seventh trumpet. And do you remember what happened? Something that had never happened before. In the blowing of that seventh trumpet, we were caused to hear of the day of the Lord. Finally, the end has come. Finally, we've gotten to the end of the story. And John summarizes in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, the end of the story by saying this, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever. Remember we said that what we'd really like is for John to write this in linear fashion. One, two, three, four. So we could follow it sort of, sort of like your, your iPhone does when it gives you those, in, those uh, instructions for going to a new destination. You plug in the destination. It tells you first do this and then do that. And down there you ought to do this. I mean, it just gives you line by line what you're supposed to do. But that's not the way John works. His vision is circular. He introduces a theme and then he comes back to it and he talks about it in a different way. He gives you more detail. He summarizes. He nuances. He fleshes the thing out. And here at chapter 11 in the blasting of the seventh trumpet, John jumps to the end of days and he says, this is what happens when the day of the Lord comes, when Jesus returns again, when there is finally the consummation of human history, the system of evil that has empowered every human kingdom will finally succumb to the authority of God and the Lamb. And there will be unending praise. In fact, that's the very passage that formed the foundation of Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, when Handel wrote that beautiful hymn, and he will reign forever. Hallelujah. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever. Hallelujah. It's a cause for joy and celebration. You remember that there was an, an interlude in chapter 12. John didn't just keep going. And remember, he doesn't always keep going in linear fashion. Instead, he stopped. And it's almost as if he stepped out of the vision. Because he wanted to tell us why the church faces difficulty and hardship. And so in chapter 12, John told us maybe what's one of the hardest, hardest passages of the book to understand. He told us about this vision of a woman who was in the travail of birth and, and how she was going to give birth to a male child. And there was a dragon who was red and sitting at the birthing stool waiting to devour this child. But God called this child up and gave him a place at his right hand. He was evacuated out, uh, out of earth. And, and then John told us that that red dragon is the ancient serpent, the devil, the one who was a deceiver from the beginning, who is Satan, the adversary. And he got into a war with Michael, the archangel, and his angels. And he was caused to, to leave heaven, forced, exiled out of the presence of God, silenced as an accuser because of the triumph of the child. And he was exiled to earth for a time. And while he was exiled to earth, he wanted to destroy the woman who had given birth to the male child. But that woman was delivered, evacuated, taken on eagle's wings to the desert place where she was nourished in the wilderness. And so because he was unable to destroy the woman, he then set his sight on destroying her children, her offspring. And he tried to destroy them one by one as he made war on them. And if that didn't thoroughly confuse you, remember that we said what that represents is the exaltation of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the exile of the serpent, the devil, and the evacuation of the saints. The child that the woman had is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was met with systems of evil and oppression in this world that desired to stamp him out and destroy him from the moment before his birth to the moments after his resurrection. There was an effort to destroy him. You see that in the plotting of Herod to kill the innocents in Bethlehem. You see it in the, in the work of the priest and the scribes and the elders who throughout Jesus' public ministry sought to destroy him and to bring an end to his life. You see that in the work of the crucifixion itself as they brought an end to Jesus' life. You see it in the lies that are told as the priest of the temple 
as they pay the, the guards to tell a false story after Jesus has been raised from the dead. But the dragon wasn't successful in destroying this male child because he won by his death and his resurrection. He won. He triumphed over death. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over the grave. And in his triumph, he is exalted. Remember that the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 that because he triumphs over death, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he's Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father and the dragon no longer has control. When John talked about that war that happened in heaven between Michael the archangel and the red dragon, he was talking about the fact that that Satan at one time had a right to dwell in the presence of God up until the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the reason that he had the right to stand in the presence of God is because he was the accuser and he would go before the face of God according to Job 1 and 2 and according to Zechariah 3. He would go before the face of God and he would accuse God of not dealing with sin justly. But when Jesus conquered hell and death and the grave by his resurrection, when he was exalted to the highest place in glory, the accuser was silenced, John tells us. He no longer has standing. He no longer has the right to accuse the Father of not dealing with sin because now the Father in the Son has dealt with sin once and for all. And so he's exiled, banished, driven out of the presence of the Father. His power is cut off. His authority is ending. He no longer will be able to hold sway over the world. His days are numbered and he will live out his numbered days on earth, John tells us. And so he comes back to earth. And in those last verses of Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17, we saw how the dragon, the devil, Satan, makes war on the woman, the people of God, the whole people of God. He wants to destroy her, but God brings her to the desert. That is, it's a way of saying God takes her to a place of provision and protection. He puts her in a place where she cannot be destroyed by the power of evil. And so because he can't destroy her on the whole, he tries to destroy her individual members, her offspring. We recalled there that this is like what John writes about in the second letter of John where he addresses his letter to the elect lady but also to her children, to the whole church but to her individual members as well. The devil makes war on the individual people of God, on on disciples of Jesus. We know that that's what he's doing because it says there in Revelation 12 that he's making war on her offspring because they have a witness for Jesus, and they hold to the testimony of Jesus. We came to Revelation 13, and we saw that dragon playing out his war against the church. And he does so as the days approach, as we get to the end of days, to the time of the great tribulation. He does so by drawing his agents forward to do his will. In Revelation 13 verses 1 through 10, we were introduced to the beast from the sea. And you remember that that beast from the sea is equivalent to several things. One, equivalent to the beast of the abyss that we read about in chapter 11. Two, equivalent to the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2. Three, equivalent to the spirit of Antichrist that John wrote about in his first and second epistles. And number four, it's equivalent to the, uh, the, the abomination of desolation, that event in which the man of lawlessness sets himself up as God in the temple that we read about in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 or Matthew 24. We've come in Revelation chapter 13, I believe, to the Great Tribulation. To this last intense period of persecution just before the final coming of the Lord Jesus. Some of you last week may have picked up one of the handouts. If you didn't, I believe we've got some tonight. We can get you one after. But if you look on that handout, you'll see that that I draw a line at the 
at the coming of the man of lawlessness, the, the son of perdition, the beast of the abyss, the beast of the sea, the coming of this man is marked out as the abomination of desolation. He sets himself up as God, drawing worship to himself. And he does so in a way that I think introduces this last period of intense persecution, the kind of difficulty and hardship that we are reading about in in the blowing of the sixth and seventh, in the blowing of the fifth and sixth trumpets in chapter nine. In Revelation 13, we've read about the beast of the sea, and now we're going to be introduced to the beast of the earth. And the beast of the earth, as we'll talk about, has another title. He's also known as the beast, or he's also known as the false prophet. We'll read about him in chapter 16. What John is doing is showing us that the dragon, who is Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, the one who from the beginning was a liar and a deceiver, that that dragon has a false trinity. He is a part of a false trinity where he plays the role of a false and unholy father. He has an agent, the beast from the sea or the abyss, the one who is the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist, who plays the role of a false and unholy son. And as we'll see tonight, there is also a beast from the earth who is the false prophet who plays the role of a false and unholy spirit. And that beast from the earth who is the false prophet who plays an unholy spirit will point attention to the beast from the sea who is Antichrist and the man of lawlessness. And the man of lawlessness will point worship to the dragon because he is empowered by him. So we want to look together at chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. John says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it, allowed, that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom... Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, and his number is six, six, six. Before introducing us to the second beast, John stopped to offer a word of pastoral edification. Remember, John's a preacher, a pastor. He's been the pastor of the church at Ephesus, a church that has been noted for its preachers. It was the place where Timothy served as a pastor, and it would be the place where Irenaeus would serve as pastor. It's a place that is notable for its preachers. And John has been their shepherd, their, their elder, their pastor. He cares about the pastoral implications of, of this letter, this prophecy, this apocalypse. And so in chapter 13, verses 9 to 10, he wrote, If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Recall that this is neither a call to arms nor a pronouncement of deserved judgment. Rather, it's a way of encouraging the people of God to accept what is coming. As the end of days approaches in the last period before the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, during what might be termed the Great Tribulation, the church will complete its assignment 
and then face the backlash of the world as it is persecuted by the beast of the abyss, who is the beast from the sea, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. As the church faces such attack, it should seek to overcome the beast in an effort to sustain its life. Excuse me, let me read that again. As the church faces such attack, it should not seek to overcome the beast in an effort to sustain its life, but should surrender its life in order to overcome the beast. Indeed, what John is telling his first hearers and <clears throat> what he's telling you and me is that when that day comes, the definition of endurance and faith will look a bit different, for they'll no longer center on what we do, but on who we are. In our surrendering of our lives on account of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be proved to belong to Christ because we did not turn our backs on Jesus to worship the beast and the dragon. In 13 verses 1 through 10, John saw the beast rising from the sea. That beast is equivalent to the Antichrist or man of lawlessness or the beast of the abyss and functions as the second person of an unholy false trinity headed by the dragon who is that ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. Now in 13, 11 to 18, John introduces us to the beast rising out of the earth. Robert Maltz writes that ancient traditions spoke of two primeval monsters which inhabited the ocean depths and the dry land. We know them from the book of Job as Leviathan and Behemoth. They occupied a waste wilderness in the tradition in the in the ancient writings John or Robert Mount says that since such mythology was known to the authors of the Old Testament there's no particular reason why John may not have reflected on it to borrow images that were common to the culture is not the same thing as saying that these are authentic or real the beast rising out of the earth is equivalent to the false prophet introduced at chapter 16 and verse 13 and is the third person of the unholy or false trinity. Mount says that as Christ received authority from the Father, Matthew eleven twenty-seven, so Antichrist receives authority from the dragon. And as the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, so the false prophet glorifies the Antichrist. Remember we said last week that all this false trinity can do is mimic or, or, or seem to copy what is done by God himself. It's why its work does not rise above that of God. John writes that this beast had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Here we are reminded that looks can be deceiving. These two horns are symbolic of the beast's guise of lowliness and gentleness as though he is as harmless as a lamb. But of course, many supposed sheep are actually wolves, as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The end time false prophet, the beast from the earth, has the appearance of a lamb by which many will be deceived. But we're called to see him for what he is. He is a ravenous wolf. Mount says that the horns like a lamb may refer to the seductive inducements of the world, loyalty, patriotism, self-interest that are held out to Christians by the beast as a way of drawing them in. Tom Schreiner writes, The deceitfulness of the second beast is apparent. He has two horns like a lamb, thus presenting himself as being in accord with the lamb, but he actually speaks like a dragon revealing his message to be demonic. In verse 11, John told us about the appearance of the beast. And in verse 12, John tells us about the authority of the beast. He says in verse 12 that it exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. 
The beast from the sea, who is the false prophet, appeared like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. The reason is because it is a servant of the dragon. Make no mistake, the agents of the dragon will reveal their true nature through their words, because the dragon revealed his true nature through his words. Go all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 3. You know that as the scene of the fall of mankind. There God has given instruction to his people, his first people, Adam and Eve, as to how they are to live. But enter into the scene the dragon, the devil, Satan, who is that ancient serpent. He came on the scene in the Garden of Eden and he spoke. And in so doing proved his character. In Genesis 3 and 1, it says that now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? From the very beginning, the serpent, the dragon, Satan himself, conveys that he is opposed to God's authority and seeks to subvert God's rule over the world that God created by challenging God's divine instruction with his deceptive interrogatives. The beast of chapter 13 is able to speak like the dragon because it is empowered by the dragon. John writes that it exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence. Grant Osborne clarifies that the phrase in its presence does not mean that the beast of the earth exercises all authority of the first beast before the eyes of the beast, but does so under the authority of the beast. The authority of the beast of the earth, the false prophet that he exercises, it has a purpose. John says it is to make the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, whose mortal wound was healed. The beast of the earth is empowered by the dragon with the same authority that belongs to the beast of the sea. A reminder that they are both agents of the dragon and that ultimately they do not draw worship to themselves but to the dragon who empowers them. But as the Holy Spirit points to Jesus and Jesus points to the Father, here the unholy false trinity works by having the beast of the earth point to the beast of the sea who in turn points to the dragon. John tells us why the beast of the earth is able to compel the earth dwellers, that is the unbelievers, to worship the beast of the sea. It is because the mortal wound of the beast of the sea has been healed. Here we're reminded that what we learned earlier in chapter 13. Remember that in verse 3 it said that one of the heads of the beast of the sea had a mortal wound, and yet it was able to live. It was as though it had been slain, but it lives. But here in verse 12 and verse 14, we find that the sword wound was actually to the whole beast and not just to one of its heads. Therefore, as the beast of the sea mimics the conquering death, the conquering of death and the appearance of the lamb as the, who stood as though it had been slain, it is able to attract worshipers. Some of you will be familiar with Eugene Peterson who wrote the paraphrase of the Bible, the message. Peterson wrote a book called Reversed Thunder that is a, a sort of a pastoral application of the revelation. And in that he writes a helpful word about why people are attracted to the beast. He says, The dragon, sea beast, and land beast are a satanic trinity that infiltrates the political world in order to deflect our worship from the God whom we cannot see to the authorities that we can see and to deceive us into buying into a religion or belief system, system that has visible results in self-gratification. One of the things that we have to realize, we talked about this last week some, is that when the end of days comes, when the abomination of desolation happens, when the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the beast of the sea, sets himself up as God in order to draw people to himself, in order to draw people to the dragon, there will not be this grand conflict in the hearts of men. 
It's not going to be as though people all of a sudden are convicted. Maybe we shouldn't worship this God. Maybe we shouldn't give ourselves to this to this man of lawlessness, this powerful pretender who sets himself up as divine. Instead, the world will go that way because they have already gone that way. The unbelieving world is already bought into the lies of the evil one. The unbelieving world has already given itself over in worship, in deference, in devotion to the God of this world, the devil. And so when he draws his appointed agent, the man of lawlessness, to step forward and capture the minds of the peoples of earth, it will be so in a comprehensive and compelling way. The people who are unbelieving, who are lost in their sin, will readily give themselves over to his worship. There will not be this great challenge. And the reason that it will happen is because they have already determined at that point not to turn away from their sin. Grant Osborne reminds us that in Romans 1, verses 24 and 26, God gives the nations over to themselves, to their shameful lust, because of their absolute depravity. The people of earth had been given opportunities to turn away from their sin and toward God in faith. God has attempted in the lead up to the great tribulation to shake the hearts of men through the plague of stinging locusts and the plague of demonic horses, which led a third of the earth to be in writhing pain and a third of the earth to be slaughtered, respectively. But John told us in chapter 9, verses 20 to 21, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Because the nations are unwilling to repent, During the great tribulation, God will give them over to their base desires and they will joyfully worship what they can see and go down to their death rather than worshiping the God they cannot see who has the ability to save them. John has told us about the appearance and the authority of the beast and now in verses 13 to 15, he tells us about the activity of the beast. He says that it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. The beast of the earth is able to compel the worship of the unbelieving world and direct it toward the beast of the sea. Yet he does, not with great show and splendor, drawing people under its spell. John writes that it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. We'll see that John is is telling us that this beast is forced to compel those who are believing to make a decision, to draw a line in the sand. Either they will bow to the worship of the beast or they will be undone. They will be out of the marketplace and go down to their death. But for the unbelieving world, there's no need for such compulsion. There doesn't have to be any harsh forcing Instead, he just puts on a sideshow. He demonstrates signs and wonders, seeming miracles, and he's able to draw them in under his sway. We're reminded of the warnings from the Torah in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 4, and in the warnings even of our Lord Jesus Christ that false prophets would perform signs and wonders in order to deceive. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 reminds us, of these counterfeit miracles that would typify false teachers and prophets throughout history, but especially would be the work of the evil one at the end of human history. Of course, there are many things that are in view here, aren't there? 
And one of the things that's in view is that story from the prophet Elijah, who in 1 Kings chapter 18 called down the fire of God opposite the prophets of Baal. That story is in the view, it's in the background as John is telling us about what the beast of the earth will do in order to draw worship to the beast of the sea. He'll be allowed to call down fire from heaven in front of the people before their very eyes. Everyone in the world is going to see this wondrous act and they're going to be taken in by it. But I like what Grant Osborne says here. He says, it is not a religious act that this beast will perform, but a public relations performance intended to enhance the worship of the false trinity. One of the tests of a false prophet is to use prophetic power for self-aggrandizement to be seen and worshipped by people. The beast of the earth will put on a show and in so doing will draw the peoples of earth, the unbelieving world, to worship the beast of the sea, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. When John says here that that they will be drawn in, deceived, uh, taken into the worship of the beast. They'll be told to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. In the background here are those statues of the emperor that were set up everywhere in the ancient world for the emperor's worship. Osborne says that there were imperial statues in buildings, porticos, fountains, the city gates, and in the streets. Many were in sacred places where they were objects of veneration. Incense, wine, bulls were sacrificed, for instance, to seal a marriage before the statue of the emperor. Imperial statues could serve as places of refuge for slaves fleeing from their masters, and slaves were given freedom in front of such statues. In Asia Minor, there was... There was a, a group of people called the Commune of Asia that were responsible for ensuring the worship of the emperor, making sure that all throughout the empire, people bowed down to the statue of the emperor and gave it praise, particularly during the reign of Domitian, who you'll remember from last week called himself Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. Those things are in the background as John talks about how the beast of the earth will compel the unbelieving world to erect statues of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the beast of the sea, and give it praise. Tom Schreiner says that it may be that this is not to be taken literal. It could be that it's not an actual physical statue that's being erected, but instead that this is a way of symbolizing the widespread worship of the beast of the sea. But either way, we're to understand that the whole unbelieving world will be drawn in by the man of lawlessness and will give itself over to his worship. So much so that John says this in verse 15, that this, this beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. In the ancient world, in their temples of, uh, of idol worship, they had all kinds of statues to their gods. But of course, we know from Psalm 115 that idols are made of wood and stone and metal, and they have mouths but don't speak, and they have ears but don't hear, and, and they have feet but don't walk, and they have, they, they, they have hands but don't feel. They are lifeless, and so are all those who worship them. And because these idols, these statues were lifeless... In the ancient world, these pagan priests went to great lengths to make them appear powerful and dynamic and alive. So much so that they had a system of incantations and, and potions and offerings that they would give to the statue. And then behind the scenes, these pagan priests would be pulling a system of, of levers and pulleys and, and they would be working to manipulate the statue itself in order to demonstrate some sort of activity before the worshipers so that people would be drawn in and think it's alive. That the God itself has come to empower or to enliven the statue. What John is saying is that the beast of the earth, the false prophet, 
is going to be such a pagan priest, such a religious leader that he causes the image, the statue of the beast of the sea, the Antichrist, to be enlivened, to appear as though it is dynamic and full of spirit. And in so doing, the unbelieving world will be drawn to its worship. And the believers of earth will be forced to go down to their death. You see the authority and the activity, and you see now the affirmation of the beast in verses 16 to 17. John says there that also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. When John writes about the small and great, the rich and poor, the free and slave, that's a way simply of telling us that the whole world is drawn into this thing. Nobody escapes. Nobody, nobody is sitting the fence. No one remains neutral. Either you worship the beast or you worship God Almighty. Either you take its mark or you're sealed by the Spirit. Either you're able to buy and sell and trade and function in the world or you're left impoverished and hungry, and outcast, and you go down to your death. There's no middle ground. Everyone must decide. And John says that the way that it will be marked out in that day is that everyone will take the mark. You've heard about this. In fact, if there's anything that characterizes the book of Revelation that people know even outside of the church, you know about the mark of the beast. And if you found yourself in the middle of the night surfing the pages of the internet, you might have found that the mark of the beast is an implanted microchip or a pill, red or blue, that you take. Or you might have even heard that they put it inside the COVID-19 vaccination. But I want to call you to think a bit more rationally. Take your attention for a moment back to Revelation chapter 7. Remember that in that description of Revelation 7, the question had been asked, when the day of the wrath of the Lamb comes, who can stand? And immediately after that question was asked, John was given a vision in which he heard the number of the tribes of Israel sealed by the Spirit of God, and he saw the unnumbered multitudes of the nations washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we resolve there that what the Apostle Paul said about the deposit of the Spirit in those who belong to God is what John writes as a sealing of the Spirit. It's a way of saying that those who trust in Jesus, those who follow the Lamb of God by faith, those who are disciples and witnesses of Christ are covered and protected and provided for. They are washed in the blood. They are sealed by the Spirit. They are kept by Christ for the last day. And if you're sealed by the Spirit, if you're held fast in His hand, if you've been washed in His blood, well, you can't be taken from Him. See, what we have now is a corollary to that, an evil corollary to that. If the seal of the Spirit keeps the people of God by faith, then the mark of the beast damns the unbelieving world in their unbelief. It's a way of saying no one is neutral anymore. Those who are unbelieving will be compelled to take the mark of the beast. It is not something, listen, this is really important. It is not something that will happen by chance, but by choice. You won't miss it. It won't happen to you without your knowledge. You don't have to worry if you're going to take the mark of the beast. You'll know it if you do it. You'll choose to do it. The unbelieving world will say, sign me up, give it to me, I want it. Because I want to belong to the beast. And the people of God will say, I will not take it. Take my life instead.
And John says that the beast is put on the, on the hand or it's put on the forehead. It's probably, probably a reference to the, the tattoos that were put on people in the ancient world in their religious practice. A lot of things could be in the background here, but that's probably what's going on. It's probably the way of saying you'll be marked out. We'll know. You don't have to wonder anymore who belongs or who doesn't. And he says that it's the way of doing business. He says in verse 17 that, that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. If you don't have the mark, if you don't have the imprint, if you, if you don't have this symbol on you, then you can't do business in the marketplace. And if you can't do business in the marketplace, you'll go down to your death. In the ancient world, they had these, they had these unions or guilds. We would call them unions. They called them guilds. And unless you were a member of the guild, you couldn't practice your craft. If you couldn't practice your craft, you couldn't make a livelihood for yourself or your family. If you weren't a part of the guild, if you didn't practice your craft, if you didn't make a livelihood for your family, then you went down to your death. And what John is saying is that when the day comes, it will be like everybody who is unbelieving will be a part of this guild. They'll all take the mark. It'll be the way we know that we can do business with them, that they're on our team and everybody else will go down to their death. And John says that the mark is the name of the beast or the number of the name. And then he says in verse 18, he gives us what I call the alias of the beast. He says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, and his number is 666. Now I know some of us, we're... We're maybe a little superstitious, and so we don't ever want anything to end in those numbers. But here's what John's saying. In the ancient world, they had this system called gematria, where they, they assigned a number to a letter. A would be 1, B would be 2, C would be 3, and so on. And so the ancients, they, they liked, even in the Jewish world, they liked to take a, a name or a title or a a place, and they would look at that and they would say, well, what is that in its number? What's it mean? And they would, they would do all this weird mathematics in order to find symbolism. And John's playing on that. He's writing with that in view. And a lot of effort for 2,000 years has been made to understand who's he talking about? What's this guy's name? His number is 666. What's, he, what's his name? In fact, John invites us to do that. He says, I want you to, to, take, to get some wisdom and think about this thing. Make the calculation. Figure out who it is. All sorts of people are offered up from the ancient world. All sorts of emperors and kings. Maybe the most common is the emperor Nero. One of the things that I learned in the study is that the only way you get Nero's name to be the number 666 is to translate from Latin to, he to Greek to Hebrew. And it's probably certain that John was not asking his followers to make such a translation and transliteration from Latin to Hebrew and Greek in order to get this number. So I've read a lot about this, and the thing I'm convinced of is this. When John says that his number is 666, what he's saying is it's not 777. Seven is a number of completion or wholeness or perfection, and three sevens would be the fullest and the most complete and the most perfect. The number of Jesus is 777. Jesus is the whole. Jesus is the complete. Jesus is the perfect. There's nothing missing in Jesus. And there's everything missing in the beast. He fails in every single way. John is taking us to the end of days. And he's saying that when Antichrist comes, when the man of lawlessness sets himself up, when the beast of the sea comes and establishes his reign over the world, there will also be this false prophet, this beast of the earth who comes up and tells all the people who are unbelieving in the world, follow him. And they will do it because they've been following him all along. Remember what John said in chapter three verses or chapter thirteen verses nine and ten. This is a call for endurance and faith. The day is going to come. 
It might come in my lifetime. It might come in yours. Or maybe it won't. Maybe it will come in the days of our children or our grandchildren. Or maybe it will be centuries on. But I know this. The day is going to come. The day is coming when a great tribulation will happen. When the beast, the man of lawlessness, the, the Antichrist will set himself up as the agent of the serpent, the dragon, Satan himself. And he will draw the unbelieving world to worship him and worship the dragon. And when he does, we will find out who really belongs to Jesus. So let us now resolve that we do belong to him by faith. Let us take confidence that Christ who died on the cross for us has washed us in his blood. That we need no hope of our own. We need no work of our flesh. We can trust in the blood of Christ to atone for our sins once and for all. Let us take joy in the fact that by faith we have had the deposit of the Spirit. We've been sealed by God's Spirit Himself. We don't have to worry that we'll take the mark of the beast. We've been sealed by the Spirit of God. And then let us be willing to give up our lives so that we do not lose our souls. Father, I pray. I pray that we would determine in our hearts that we will not walk away from Jesus. Not because of the strength of our character, but because of the sufficiency of your son's sacrifice. Let us take joy in the fact that we have been sealed by the Spirit. And so we can joyfully and willingly surrender our lives even unto death because we know that our souls belong to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.